travellers and welcome to podcast 78 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. And today's podcast is all about you, with the odd intervention from us, of course. The subject is those formative travel experiences that changed you forever. So let me start by thanking in advance the fellow travellers who got in touch via Twitter at You Should Have BT. And it certainly made me think about all the journeys that really have meant something to me. I don't actually think I've missed a year since my very first trip in 1966, until, of course, 2020. Um, and I suppose, uh, Simon, that as the uh, most inveterate of inveterate travellers, you've uh, had another week largely confined to the Twitter. Well, I've been in the UK and the big problem that actually has emerged is what I would guess I would call reverse quarantine. I've heard far too many stories of people coming back, having filled in with every piece of paper, every form, every test, every booking. They've had a great holiday. They come back. They think uh, it's fine. Great. How lovely to escape again. And then um, a day or two later, they get pinged and told somebody on your plane has tested positive, you are going into quarantine for the next 10 days. So therefore, being able to reflect on great journeys of the past is a some solace. And it's been terrific to hear uh, everybody's um, thoughts. In fact, we mentioned Rebecca last week when she was talking about staying in huge Soviet hotels and the sleeper train from uh, St. Petersburg to Moscow during a, a trip to uh, Russia. And it seemed to have made such a, an impact on her that, well, we asked her to tell us more. My experience of Russia was going on a sixth form school trip for a week in February 1992. I hadn't been abroad much at that point, and it was all incredibly exciting, starting with the flight from Stansted Airport, which had only recently opened, to St. Petersburg with Aeroflot. We stayed in enormous tourist hotels in both St. Petersburg and Moscow. I remember the water in the bathroom was brown, and we were told not to use it even for brushing teeth and had to use bottled water. The television was stuck on one Russian channel and was at full volume that also couldn't be changed. There was a power cut one night on our way to dinner and we had to stumble down the stairs in the dark. On the subject of dinner, our meals always seemed to include potato salad made into a pyramid and water with white sediment at the bottom, followed by ice cream which was incredibly good. We saw the various sites of St Petersburg, including walking on the frozen Gulf of Finland before getting the sleeper train to Moscow. As you can imagine, that was quite an adventure. I seem to remember that we had managed to get hold of some alcohol, which added to the fun. The Moscow Hotel was one that had been built for the 1980 Olympics, and we had a fantastic view from our room on the 22nd floor. We also visited other hotels for lunch. All were similarly cavernous, with a certain brutalist charm about them. We went to a heated outdoor swimming pool, which was quite an experience. To get into the pool from the changing rooms, you had to walk through inexplicably scalding hot water. Some people were taking part in the tradition of getting out and rolling in the snow, then jumping back in. But I myself wasn't brave enough. Another interesting aspect of it was that wet hair would instantly freeze and turn into what felt like strands of spaghetti, as temperatures were around minus 20 degrees. 
As well as the normal tourist attractions, we also went on the metro system with its palatial stations, visited a school and had a look in the famous department store GUM, which had a somewhat limited selection of merchandise. At the time, I didn't fully appreciate the political situation. But looking back, the country was obviously going through a very important transition and St. Petersburg had only just stopped being called Leningrad. I think it still had the feel of its Soviet days, but with signs of change. For example, on the last night, we went to a recently opened pizza hut. But before going home, we were asked to leave any spare medicines for the cleaning staff, as it was so difficult for them to get hold of such things, showing that life was still far from easy for the general population. I would love to go back to Russia, and I'm learning Russian at the moment. It's definitely one of my most exciting travel memories. Well, that's a great story from uh, from Rebecca. And uh, I suppose it uh, does add um, a bit of zest to your journey if the place that you're going to is actually in the middle of a, quite a sort of serious um, social and political change. I think it does. I've been lucky enough to travel quite widely in particularly Central America uh, in the early 1990s when there was a very strong sense of change. And I know that you were in South America uh, during the tumult of the late 1980s. Yeah, that's true. And I kind of think that the one that possibly made the most impact on me, which I did uh, ramble on about a bit in a previous podcast, was being in Portugal uh, the year of their uh, Carnation Revolution, where the feeling of uh, liberation and uh, enthusiasm was, I think you could say, palpable. Good. And uh, we also, of course, have to remember that uh, things may come and things may go, but the great Russian trains roll on forever. And I was interested in Rebecca's uh, railway experience in Russia, as well as that of astronomer extraordinaire Dr John Mason who was our guest last week and he told us about his own Russian rail trip. I did do a number of trips to to Russia in the 1980s and I also travelled on the sleeper train, uh, this train from Moscow to St Petersburg and uh, I was in a sleeper with um, three Russians and I didn't speak a word of Russian, they didn't speak a word of English but one of them had a chess set and got out a pocket chess set, and and we played uh, games of chess uh, in the night on that sleeper train. And uh, it shows that, uh, you know, what an international language you can often have without even speaking the language. And here's another night tripper. This is Jules at Jules on Holes, um, who remembers interrailing with two friends across Europe in 1984, going to most of the major cities and sites and sleeping in a couchette every night. It was my second trip abroad. I did it two more times and still want to do more European train trips. Thank you for sharing that. I think this was quite an upmarket interrail trip, sleeping in a couchette every night, um, because I do recall you had to pay typically six pounds a night uh, for each night in a, a couchette as you as you rolled sleepily across Europe, which was yeah, a pretty good deal, but not quite as good a deal as uh, finding three seats across and and going to sleep on the uh, 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 on a an ordinary night train. I never got into interrail. I was um, more of a hitchhiker, occasionally taking trains, and of course, Mick, your uh, trip across Spain that we heard about um, when you were uh, going, um, I, th- I think, uh, o- on the slowest train in 
Europe at the time. And there was a whip round to get you a ticket for a slightly faster one. That's a great rail experience. Not much to do with interrail. Um, so you probably wouldn't have encountered jewels. No, but the beginnings of uh, that first uh, journey to Spain were um, recalled for me by the tweet from Mike. Um, and I was particularly keen on it, not just because I deduced that we must have been born in the same year, um, but he flew across the channel on the same long defunct airline um, that I did what? 11 years later. So here's Mike's tweet. My first trip abroad, age six in 1955. We flew from Lyd to Le Touquet on Silver City with our car in the plane's nose, <laughs> then drove to Lurette de Mar. After a week there, we came back the same way, albeit landing at Blackbush Airport due to fog at Lyd. Happy days. <laughs> I'm astonished because I I knew about I never saw them I never travelled on them these um amazing freighters which converted by the great Freddie Laker before he moved on to transatlantic travel and they yes in in the days before roll on roll off ferries you drove on and drove off and the passengers would sit there while their car was flown to France. This seems, as I say it, I can barely believe that I'm saying it. Um, <laughs> but it, well, it was a, a popular way to go. But one uh, form of uh, Anglo-French travel I definitely went on um, in my late teens, I think, was the uh, the Silver Arrow. This sounds really impressive, but what it was was the, just the ordinary train from London, Victoria to Gatwick Airport. Then you would get on a, uh, a very cramped plane, which would fly all the way to Le Touquet, which is a distance of about, uh, I guess, 70 miles or something, completely wasteful, at which point you would get off onto a special dedicated boat train. And I recall it cost something like £45 return, which... Uh, at the time, for the opportunity of going on a plane was incredibly cheap, but of course now would be regarded as in extremely expensive, not least because it was presumably round about £500 in, in present day terms. Anyway, Mike's formative journey to Lorette de Mar was also the destination of Norman Hardwick's recollection. He says, late 1960s, BOAC flight from Heathrow, I think about £25 return to Barcelona. Two weeks in Lorette de Mar, about 160 pesetas to the pound. And my first taste of a Ducados cigarette. I remember Ducados well, um, and it was one of the essentials of being in, in Spain for the first time. But Ducados weren't quite in the same league as Celtas, um, which were absolutely awful bonfires of cigarettes. And I, I don't know if you remember, they had a very squashy packet with a with a well with a a, a Celtic warrior on the uh, on on the uh, on the wrapping. No, I, I do recall uh, Ducados though, because cigarettes in Spain, obviously, like pretty much everything else, were extremely cheap, and therefore you could afford to smoke these um, these I think king sized cigarettes um i believe they are still um on sale uh goodness knows how much they cost i hope an awful lot more than they they, they were but um uh yes overseas cigarettes and we were talking um about of course the the great smell of Gaulois in uh dieppe yeah. and and what 
that that brings back. So yes, smoking very very bad, but very much an element of uh, many formative trips. Yes, along with uh, old airports that uh, often have now um, disappeared. Um, or sometimes been resuscitated by the uh, uh, likes of Ryanair and EasyJet. Susanna was surprised to hear that Le Touquet actually had an airport. She said, That's amazing. I never knew that was a thing. My house is near Le Touquet, and that would be very handy if we can ever travel there again. Oh, I would say that there's every chance the airport um, code LTQ is still there. Susanna also told us about uh, her first formative trip abroad. School ski trip to Austria at 14. Coming from a council flat in Bermondsey, I did chores for parents and neighbours to pay for it. Gave me a lifelong love, I presume, of uh, skiing. And I've been every year since starting work until this year. And here's someone else who went to Austria at the age of 14. This was Carol. 1972 it was. She was 14, took her first flight to visit her pen friend in Austria, travelled solo, uh, stay with a family she'd never met other than by correspondence, different times. Uh, I never had uh, pen friends and I imagine that uh, they are no longer really part of life because of course you could um you you could become a facebook uh, friend instantly and that wouldn't necessarily mean that you were going to go and stay there but uh, when you were when letters took um, days to arrive and cost really quite a significant amount must have been really quite formative and the idea of just going randomly to meet these strangers uh, different times indeed and very very good ones so yes we welcome welcome stories of of pen friends especially if they've become lifelong friends or even partners ah yes i did actually have a pen friend uh a spanish girl but we never got to meet up um and i've now forgotten her name i think it might have been mary carmen now here's a trip that just about qualifies as uh, a formative trip abroad and it's from penny i remember being driven through the night to dear Pembrokeshire for a wild camping holiday in the late 1950s, Ooh. aged about seven, in a Morris Minor Traveller. <laughs> Two tunnels in the camping gear for my cousin and I to sleep in, dog in the middle, waking at dawn. I worried for the car, straining on those hills. I'm not surprised. So therefore, I'm I'm, I'm picturing uh, Penny there um, and her cousin. So they're, they're, they're shoved in the back of um, this, well, to use the term loosely, estate car, uh, which which is, I imagine, finding it really quite tricky once you get to the, um, uh, the, the, the western end of Wales, uh, coping with that. But yeah, I would worry for the car. I'd worry for the um, uh, whole prospect of, of wild camping in Pembrokeshire, it, it just doesn't um, doesn't appeal at all, I'm afraid. Um, does it to you? Oh yeah, absolutely appeals to me. I wish um, I wish my family had uh, had come up with that idea. But there wasn't really any camping, as far as I remember it, much in the uh, in the UK. And I the thought of wild camping, oh, that's absolutely sort of off the scale. I think um, I did find out later that. Um, people of my age, who I suppose you could say were from the uh, from the middle classes, um, actually had been to France with their parents to camp because uh, France was way ahead of us in uh, in 
campsites and um, camping equipment and all that kind of stuff. And I suppose that uh, what people uh, tended to do here was to go to holiday camps, which uh, didn't really involve tents at all. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, they. Uh, that that's a very very um, good uh, equivalent. Yes, so so we perhaps because of the weather being um, less clement, the industrialization of uh, holidays to allow lower income families to go did involve the holiday camp. Uh, of course, the very first one, Skegness in 1936, I believe, quickly followed by Clacton, Bognor Regis, etc. And some of them are still going and, and very popular. But the idea was that um, uh, you could uh, just about, um, for a week's pay, afford, and, and the Holidays with Pay Act had only recently been um uh, past you could actually afford to keep the family there but it would all be weather dependent yes we would be in the in the chalets in these horrible concrete blocks rather than in tents simply because um much more likely to be cold and rainy uh we we welcome of course tales of of butlins or indeed pontins or any other holiday camp experience to check that um it did actually exist because i don't think you or i ever went to anything quite like that although i i used to envy people who did yes i think i was rather forced into becoming a, a an independent traveler from the word go without going through the uh, uh, the <laughs> stages of package holidays and the like uh, and in fact on that subject uh, we have uh, a tweet from at home and bored whose formative trip was this one, being persuaded to book independent flights to Tenerife and stay in a private apartment. January 1992. Haven't booked a package holiday since. Love independent travel and exploration. Well, so do we, and we've had some fantastic walking in Tenerife, uh, not just to the top of Teide, the highest mountain in Spain, but also uh, over towards the north west of the island there is some spectacular kind of one day hiking um i'm just not sure i would agree that uh, package holidays are necessarily bad i've been on many package holidays to uh, uh, the canaries and thoroughly enjoyed them uh interesting timing january 1992 so before the uh, no frills revolution began which was really 1995 but of course these days um uh, probably more than half the people who are going to the canaries are doing their own independent thing now here's another reason for traveling which i guess is a rather more modern one and it's crisply summed up by ash applewaite getting married in vegas exclamation mark <laughs> well, time to hear of some more uh, long haul memories. Here's Mark Patel. Trips to see my father's family in India and Nepal in the late 1970s. Visit to Kathmandu in 1978 was the clincher. Age only 13, seeing the distant high Himalaya sparked a sense of adventure and curiosity which has never gone away and which I would say is perhaps more enduring and profound with the greatest respect to uh, Ash um, than a trip to Las Vegas. And here's another Indian adventure from Titanic Translator. Delhi to Kerala and back by train. Christmas to New Year last century, in the days before cheap internal flights. 
woken up by the charming chai waller. All of life, the best of it on that train, the locals and their stories. Namaste. Very, very evocative. Um, Dr. John Mason, who we mentioned earlier, enjoyed his most memorable travel experience while on, not surprisingly, an astronomical mission. Yes, it was in uh, 1986, in uh, the spring of 1986, the return of Halley's Comet. Now, um, Halley's Comet, of course, only comes round about every 75, 76 years, and its return was greatly anticipated. And I got involved in all sorts of incredible schemes in 1985 and 86, which probably would make a programme all of their own. But uh, I was invited to go out to Australia in uh, end of March, uh, April 1986, to do a lecture tour uh, all around Australia to um, talk about Halley's Comet and uh, to show people the comet. And uh, it was the most amazing five weeks that I'd ever spent up to that time. I met the most incredible people. I covered vast distances in a place the scale of which I'd never really uh, imagined. You know, they think of nothing of going for a a 200-mile drive each way just for an evening's drinks at Friends. Um, and, And it was, for me, the most memorable trip. I met incredible people. Uh, I did incredible things in a place that was utterly beautiful and on a scale that I'd never really imagined. And we got some good views of Halley's Comet as well from the outback. Dr John summarises all the ingredients of a -a once-in-a-lifetime travel experience there, with the bonus, of course, for him, of a view of Halley's Comet. Um, And uh, if you'd like to keep an eye out for that, it's coming back in 2061. Well, a vote for Australia from John and now a couple of votes for South Africa. Kerry says, driving across the Limpopo with my son, aged six years, never looked back since. And Sue Williams, meanwhile, says, my first time in South Africa, my first elephants, my first lion, first leopard, first castle lager, first time taking a wee in Nelson Mandela's house. Amazing South African wine. First visit to Johannesburg Airport, my favourite. And I made a lifelong friend. And Kerry Williams again, I love Johannesburg Airport. Well, now I have to ask you, Simon, because I've never been there. Uh, is there anything special about uh, Joburg Airport? No, I, I like the transport there because I just turn up in the in the local minibuses, um, which is always a a hoot. Uh, whether you're coming from Johannesburg or from Pretoria, it's a a, a, a lovely journey out there. Um, it functions, I guess, more efficiently than some. Uh, African airports, but it's still still not somewhere I would uh, be excited about being, except to the extent that it generally opens up an African adventure. Yes, um, I love to suit Sue uh, Williams' list of firsts, um, particularly the we in Nelson Mandela's house. <laughs> but but I was more intrigued by the uh, enigmatic uh, line from Kerry, which is driving across the Limpopo, and uh, I wondered um, where she was driving from and to. Um, It sort of sounds almost metaphorical, like crossing the Rubicon, doesn't it? Crossing the Limpopo, which, by the way, was called the Great Grey Green Greasy Limpopo (laughs) by uh, Rudyard Kipling. I presume Kerry was either crossing from uh, South Africa to Botswana, 
or back the other way, or more likely from South Africa to Zimbabwe or back the other way, because there is a very, very important um, uh, road bridge called the Alfred Bight Road Bridge, which connects Zimbabwe and South Africa, which was built in 1995 after I went there, um, but which kind of allows very heavy traffic to go from one country to another, which for a landlocked country like Zimbabwe is rather important. Yes, and the Limpopo, an astonishing waterway, which effectively um, describes a huge arc across the top of South Africa and indeed forms the border, I think, with Botswana, with Zimbabwe and indeed with Mozambique. So uh, more Limpopo adventures always appreciated. And thank you so much for your contributions. If you want to elaborate on your Twitter tale, you can just get in touch with us. Leave an audio message at anchor.fm forward slash you should have been there. Well, I'll second your thanks. And uh, I would love to know more, for instance, about what it was that travelling to Italy did to Denzel Clark in a good way. Here is his um, intriguing tweet. My journey to Milan to take up my first real job. Italy changed me forever for the better. And let me share that optimistic note with our dear contributor, Kathy Adams, now my former colleague. She has left The Independent this week to move on to The Times, and we wish her a fond farewell. And also you, until next week, when our topic is going to be decided effectively by the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps. Yes, on Thursday, we expect him to tell us all about uh, the new traffic light list, that holiday quarantine roulette involving green, amber, red, various watch lists and plus categories. And we'll be exploring the places that are changing on that uh, great, great register. So next week's podcast, not for the colourblind. <laughs> yes. Um, and meanwhile, from me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.